As we look together at Matthew chapter 26, turn in Matthew's Gospel to Matthew chapter 26. This morning we'll be looking at verses 17 through 35. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, I know I do a lot of illustrations and references to uh, to movies, especially superhero movies. Uh, and I know a lot of you were not raised with that, and that's not your, your thing. So indulge me for just another moment. As I mentioned, one of my favorite characters from comic books is uh, the Juggernaut. And the Juggernaut pretty much has one characteristic, one trait, one power, and that's that he is completely unstoppable. Once he gets going, once he starts moving, there is no force, there is no wall, no barrier, nothing can stop him. So when he's your enemy, that's bad news. There's nothing you can do to protect yourself from the juggernaut. But when he's on your side, that's a very, very good thing. You have nothing to fear because you have the juggernaut and nothing can stop him. And I was thinking of the juggernaut this week because I was realizing that that level of confidence is what God designs for His people because the salvation that He has designed for us and given to us is, like the juggernaut, completely unstoppable. And we don't always recognize that. We get consumed by our fears. We're reading the news or we're we're seeing what's going on in our own lives, our own homes. We're consumed by our worries or insecurities or whatever it is. 
we fail to remember that what God has given us and promised us is indeed an unstoppable salvation. Nothing can come between us and what God has designed for us. And so when Jesus and His disciples sit down to a meal the night that He's going to be betrayed, the night before He's to be crucified, it's not a coincidence that they're sitting down to a Passover meal. The Passover highlighted God's sovereignty and salvation. That word sovereignty describing how God's plans are unstoppable. And if you were with us at all in the previous month as we looked at Esther, you know we used the word providence to describe that. That God is completely in control and His plans, His purposes, His designs can't be stopped. The Passover was the time when despite the opposition of Pharaoh, the great enemy of God's people, and despite the, at times, unwillingness and unbelief of Moses, uh, of the people of Israel, Now, you have to recall, you don't want to see the story of Israel and Egypt as this whole great nation rising up and saying, Moses, go to Pharaoh for us. No, in fact, Moses had a hard time convincing God's people that God intended their deliverance. No, so it was in despite of Pharaoh's opposition, but also in spite of his own people's unbelief, that God Himself took action and delivered His people through a sacrifice. He gave them the Passover as a reminder that His salvation cannot be stopped. Like the words that the psalmist teaches us to sing in Psalm 3, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Not to any other God. Not to my own plans. Not to my own designs. Not to good luck. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We need to be reminded of that so that we do not fall prey to fear, to worry, or to any notions and illusions about our own power and our own role in bringing about God's perfect plan. We need to see that salvation belongs to the Lord because that's the only way that we can be certain that nothing stops the rescue that God has planned. So the first way that I want to highlight in this passage that we see the unstoppable salvation of God is that God's enemies cannot stop His salvation. God's enemies cannot stop His salvation. In verse 21, Jesus announces His betrayal. He says, as they were eating, He says to them, truly I say to you, one of you is going to betray Me. Now Judas, as we saw last week, was in cahoots with the chief priests, the elders. They were devising a way to to betray Jesus. And Judas may have thought that he was acting in secret. But we see that Jesus knows. In fact, Jesus had known even before Judas took action, even before Judas was planning to betray Jesus, Jesus knew what was happening. As far back, earlier, uh, perhaps even years before this night, as Jesus is feeding the multitudes. And, and then He says some things that they don't like, so people start to leave Him. Even His disciples are leaving Him, but the twelve stay behind. And in John chapter 6, He says, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you, the twelve, is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray Him. But it wasn't just Judas. This isn't some rogue disciple going off and doing something like that. Scripture tells us that it was Satan himself who moved Judas to action. It is the enemy of God plotting a way to to take down the Son of God and remove Him from the equation 
to assassinate the king before he takes his throne. And so it was Satan who incites Judas to do this. It was the work of the enemy. And the disciples are shocked and they want to know, which one of us? Who is it? And in verse 25, Jesus indicates in a roundabout way that it was Judas. Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus says, you've said so. Now we need to be clear that the way Jesus says, you have said so, it's kind of hard to translate. It's a very ambiguous phrase that to all the other disciples who, who did not imagine that it could be one of them, they would hear those words of Jesus as, hey, I didn't say that, you said that. But it could also be heard by Judas, who knew the truth, as, not my words, but you said it. You said it yourself. It was vague. It was so vague that when John tells the story in his gospel, he says after Jesus had kind of outed Judas, he says, what you have to do, do quickly. So Judas gets up and leaves, and John says, we didn't know where he was going. We thought he had to go buy some more food or make an offering or something. So, so Jesus knew. Judas knew. But nobody else knew. And so they continue to wonder, who is it? Who's going to do it? Is it me? Is it you? But that's not the point. That's not the point of why Jesus is saying it. They're missing the point in trying to figure out who it is. The point is not which one of them was going to betray Jesus. The point is that Jesus knows He's going to be betrayed He's not doing anything to stop it. He's not saying, hey, it's him right here. Everybody, hold him down. Get his arms. Tie him up. we got to stop this. No. He knows exactly what's going on. And he's okay with it. And here's why. Verse 24. Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Basically meaning what's, what's about to happen to me, the Son of Man, that's what he called himself. The Son of Man is going to go and what's going to happen to me is exactly what's written. What God had spoken through the prophets in years past. All of this is a script that's been written and we're just playing it out. We've talked about this a lot lately. We talked about it in Esther. We talked about it in Isaiah in December. We talked about it in Matthew back in November. We talked about how the work of the enemy does not ever, ever take God by surprise. And therefore, the work of the enemy does not ever have the power or the potential to undo what God is doing. Another hint of that is in verse 23, when Jesus says, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. That's a pretty clear reference to Psalm 41, verse 9, where the psalmist says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, you have to understand the way they would eat there. It's not everybody gets their own plate in their own bowl. They're, they're sitting around a big table in a very uh, not COVID-friendly way, just kind of sharing, dipping into the same bowl with their bread and double dipping even. I mean, uh, and, and so the point is one of you who is close enough to this dish that we are just the 12, 13 of us sitting around it sharing this meal together, it's one of you is going to betray me. And what's so significant about that verse in the Psalms where the psalmist says, my close friend who ate my bread and shared with me in this meal is the one who's rising up against me, is how that psalmist goes on in the following verses. The next verses read like this in verses 10-12, through 12, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. 
Yes, there's a plan of the enemy. And yes, the enemy is at work with betrayal and opposition. And as, as we'll see, with murder even for Jesus. But the enemy will not shout in triumph. That's not how the story ends. The salvation of God is unstoppable and certain because even Judas's betrayal is a part of the plan. Another movie that I just saw this past week reminded me of that where there was a group of people trying to pull off a heist and save a lot of lives and they knew that one of the people in their group was likely to betray them. And so they made that part of their plan. They anticipated it. They expected it. And when finally Berkeley betrayed them, it actually fit perfectly into the plan they had made because they knew it was going to happen. Judas, his betrayal, it was a part of the plan. Everything the enemy does, God has seen it 18 moves ahead and said, I've already got you in checkmate. You just don't know it yet. Does that mean that Judas then isn't guilty because he was just doing what God had planned for him to do? Well, not according to verse 24. As Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. All this is what God has, has foretold. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. This is a, a clear pairing of the, uh, the two very uh, difficult doctrines of God's divine sovereignty. That God plans all things and yet human responsibility. God's plan will be carried out just the way He intends, and yet Judas is still responsible for his role in it, just as you and I are responsible for each and every choice we make. It's, it's a mystery, or the technical word is a paradox. Two things that seem to contradict each other, and yet they are both true according to God's Word. That God's plan is worked out perfectly, and yet our free choices exist And the point is not to explain that Judas is or is not at fault. The point is that there is nothing that Judas can do, or Herod, or Caiaphas, or Pilate, or you, or me, or anyone today, or tomorrow, or anyone on earth, or in heaven, or in hell. There is no power that can undo what God is going to do to save His people. Amen? That gives you a level of security that you have not yet dug into. Nothing, no one can oppose the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. And because of that, you have confidence, you have hope, you have peace. But the work of the enemy isn't the only threat to our salvation. Because what if we fail in our part? What if the objects of God's mercy, the followers of Jesus, fail to be faithful? Well, the good news we see in this text is not only can God's enemies not stop His salvation, but our failures cannot stop His salvation. Our failures do not have the power to stop the salvation of God. In verse 31, Jesus warns His followers, you will all fall away because of Me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Judas would betray Jesus, sure, but... The rest are going to abandon him. They're going to fail him. Peter's even going to deny him three times. Verses 33 and 34, Peter says, look, Jesus, I don't care if these guys run away, but I I will never fall away. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows, I'm not talking about you're going to break down over time. I'm talking about tonight, Peter. You're going to deny three times that you even know me. 
And understandably, the apostles have a hard time coming to terms with this. Peter says, even if I must die with you, I would not deny you. And all the disciples said, yeah, us too, us too, yeah, sure. And that's understandable because we, we judge and view ourselves by our own intentions, don't we? You know, we view others by their worst moments and look at ourselves by our best moments. We look at others' actions, we look at our intentions, right? That's what we do. We measure ourselves by our desires, by our commitments. None of us plan to sin. You know, I never, I never am leaving the office and going home and in the car and thinking, you know what, I'm going to go home and lose my temper when I get home. I think that's what I'm going to do today. No, none of us plan that, but it happens. Like the disciples, our, our good intentions, our verbal commitments and our expectations of ourselves are not enough. And yet, salvation is not stopped by our failures. Now, why does Jesus need to tell His disciples that this is going to happen? Why does He bother telling them? Is He trying to express a preemptive disappointment? You know, I know you guys are going to mess up. I just want you to know that I'm sad about it already. Yeah. No. He, he's, not, he's not communicating criticism or condemnation. Instead, as we look to what He actually says, He's warning them and, and giving them hope. That might seem a little weird. He's telling them they're going to fail so that they might have hope. He knows our weaknesses and our failures. They don't surprise Him. They don't phase Him. He's looking beyond those. He sees what's beyond it. Can you imagine being one of the disciples and that night in the garden as Jesus is arrested? You fail Him and run for your life? How are you going to feel afterwards? What if you're like that nameless young man described in Mark's Gospel who when, when they are arresting Jesus, somebody grabs his cloak and to get away, he shrugs it off and runs away naked. You know, like how, how shamed how frustrated, how embarrassed, how down on yourself are you going to be if you fail Jesus at that point? And yet Jesus knew already. And He told you, I know it's going to happen. And after it happens, I still have a plan for you. That's, that's the beauty of the salvation that Jesus brings. As, as many have pointed out in the past, and if you haven't heard it before, you're going to hear it now, but no, this doesn't come from me. The difference between other religions and the Gospel is this. In other religions, it's all about what you do for God. It's what we do for God. But the Gospel is about what Jesus has done for us. So if you haven't heard that, you need to hear it again. Other religions are about what you do for God. Your hope, your salvation, your worth. It all comes from what you do for God. But the Gospel is about what Jesus has done already what He has done for you. The disciples will abandon Jesus, but that does not mess up the plan of God. Because they're not the ones who need to go to the cross. You see, salvation isn't about faithful followers of Jesus doing all the right things. That's not the basis of salvation. The basis of salvation is what Jesus did on the cross. And He alone needed to go to the cross to do it. In fact, failure of the disciples just goes on to serve as proof, as illustration of why we need Jesus. Because He alone can die the death that they cannot die. And then He gives them hope in the midst of their failure in verse 32. He says, after I'm raised up, 
I will go before you to Galilee. So the disciples, hearing that they're going to betray, that they're going to fail Jesus and flee, they get so fixated on that that they don't notice that he says, by the way, I'm going to be raised up again. And then I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to meet you in Galilee. You see, he knows our failures before they happen. And he speaks of the obedience and the life that we're going to have on the other side of our sin and on the other side of our failure. His message is, yes, you're going to fall short. Yes, you will fail to do and be all that God's law demands. But you know what? I still include you in my plan because though we abandon Jesus, he does not abandon us. We give up on him. He doesn't give up on us. Jesus says, I go to the cross because of your failure. And after I take care of that, I have more in store for you. I have a vision for you beyond your failure. Our failures cannot stop God's salvation. So we've seen in these passages how the enemy threatens God's salvation and cannot stop it. And how our failures might seem to threaten that salvation, but still do not stop it. And here at the heart of the story in the middle, we see why. It's because God's promise guarantees salvation. God's promise guarantees salvation. In verse 28, in sharing the Last Supper, Jesus lifts the cup and says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. To appreciate the meaning of what Jesus says there and of what we're about to share in in the Lord's Supper this, this day, We need to put on our Old Testament goggles for a little bit. So hang with me as we do a deeper dive into what that phrase means. The blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins. From the very beginning, God's relationship with His people is communicated through covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two or more parties. You can think of it like a contract where both groups make certain commitments, promises they will fulfill, and benefits they'll receive, and consequences they take on in the event of breaking the covenant. Penalties for failure. We see God in Scripture making covenants with His people through Noah. We see Him making covenants with His people through Abraham, through Moses, through David. And in in all these covenants, we see promised blessing. We see obedience that is required and demanded. And we see warnings of the consequences of failure. And every covenant, not just in Scripture, but in in all of the ancient Near East, as nations are making covenants with nations and tribes making covenants with tribes and individuals making covenants with one another, we can find in the historical writings of that day, every covenant was made official by a sacrifice, by blood. The way it worked in Abraham's day, we see in in Scripture, is, is you would actually take a series of animals that you would sacrifice and you would cut them in half. And both parties would walk through the middle of that bloody pathway saying, may this be done to me if I don't uphold this promised covenant. May this be done to me. May I be broken. May my blood be spilled. That sacrifice makes it official. Every sacrifice, every covenant was made official by a sacrifice. And so we look look at Exodus 24. We see the covenant between God and His people through Moses at Sinai after God had given His law. They made sacrifices to make their covenant official. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. The altar represented God as one party 
of the sacrifice. And then he took the book of the covenant, that's the law, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And the people responded that all the Lord has spoken, we will do. We'll be obedient. We're, we're signing up for this. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. You know, in our confession of sin, we, we quoted Psalm 51 that said, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. They would use a hyssop branch to sprinkle the blood on the people when they did this. The blood of the covenant. And Moses took the blood, threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That phrase is so important. The blood of the covenant. The people are making a promise to obey God's commands. And that blood of the sacrifice says God demands life for disobedience. And so we commit with our lives to obey. So look in verses 26 and 20 through 28 what Jesus says. He takes the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, take and eat. This is My body. He breaks His body as a sacrifice. And He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So there's a sacrifice. His body. There's the blood of the sacrifice. His blood. It is the blood of the covenant. What covenant? Let's keep our Old Testament goggles on for a few more minutes here. It's the covenant of God to forgive sins, as he said in verse 28. The blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Where we see this idea of a covenant for the forgiveness of sins is in Jeremiah 31. And we're going to walk through Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Where the Lord says through the prophet, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant in Exodus 24, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He says, look, this new covenant is going to be different. It's going to be different in character. There's going to be something very different about it because they broke my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one have to teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, their sin. And I will remember their sin no more. In Exodus, God made a covenant. The people committed to it. It was sealed with blood and the people broke it. Minutes later, they broke it with their disobedience. And God promises, I'm going to make a new covenant, one that you can't break. And do you know why? Because the blood's not going to be on you, the blood's going to be on me. You know, when God and Abraham made that covenant and walked through the sacrifices, Abraham was asleep. God Himself took on full responsibility for both parties upholding the contract. It's like, it's like if you signed a mortgage with a bank and you're both signing, and you look at the fine print, and it says, if you violate this covenant, if you fail to pay, it's okay, we'll pay it off for you. You'd be quick to sign that, wouldn't you? <laughs> That's what God has said. He says, I am entering into a covenant with you, and instead of punishing you for violating my covenant, I will be the one to be broken. It is my blood that will seal this covenant. That's what the people in Jesus' day were waiting for. The promise of a new covenant. 
That's what Jesus died to make real. That's why our failure, our sin, our brokenness cannot stop the salvation of God because the consequence, the onus, is not on us anymore. He has taken it upon Himself. It's not our blood. It's not our sacrifice. It's not our commitment. It's not our obedience. This time, it's the blood of Jesus that seals the deal. He takes on responsibility for keeping the covenant. And if it is broken, when it is broken, He takes on the consequence which he did on the cross. Jesus took on the penalty of our disobedience, our broken vow, our faithlessness, and because of the blood of the covenant, God forgives our sin. And we are treated as if we were faithful daughters and sons. This is why in Romans 8, Paul speaks of of the benefits of that covenant as if they'd already happened. Okay, Now we're going to set aside our Old Testament goggles. We're going to put on our grammar goggles. And we're going to look at the tenses of the words in Romans 8, 28 through 30, most specifically the last verb, what tense it is in. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom God foreknew, past tense, He also predestined, past tense, to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, past tense, of course, He also called, You were already called, past tense. And those whom he called, he also justified, means made right, legally righteous before God, as if you had no sin, already happened, justified, past tense. And those whom he justified, he will also someday glorify, is not how it's written. The glorification of God's people, the fullness, the fullness, the richness, The completion of your salvation is spoken of in Romans 8 as if it already happened. He also glorified. That's how certain it is. It is so certain that Paul can speak of it as if it has already happened. And he gives us a meal. A meal to remind us how that can be. And so today as we eat the bread and share the cup, what are we doing? What should it bring to mind? I want to suggest three three things to think about. Think about the past, the present, and the future. The supper points us to the past. We are remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. Remembering what He has done. That by His death, our salvation is secure. That our hope rests not in what we have yet to do, but in what was already done on our behalf. His body, His blood, broken and shed for us. Because it is God who makes salvation happen. Not me not you. And therefore, it is unstoppable. It is secure. It is certain. So we think of the past, what was already done for us, but we also think of the present. We think of of how if this is true, how then must I live? I am called to take upon the image of God. I am called to obey. I am called to live out that covenant. But not only that, I have His Spirit that gives me the strength to do so. This this sacrament, this meal, points us to the power and obligation that we have today to live according to God's way. And we also look to the future. As verse 29 in Matthew 26, Jesus says, I tell you guys, I'm not going to drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus tells His disciples that this special meal reminds us that there is something better ahead. That this today is not all we have. 
But there is yet coming a day when all of this will be brought to completion and we will sit down with Jesus at a feast, a meal of which this is just a hint, just a foretaste, just an appetizer, not even an hors d'oeuvre. We're going to share something much greater and that's what we look towards. We declare His coming until He returns again. And so as we share the Lord's Supper today, let it point you to the unstoppable salvation of God which was accomplished at Calvary in the past, which gives you power and direction today and secures your hope in the future. With that in mind, let's prepare our hearts to share in the supper together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that there is nothing we can do. There is nothing we can fail to do to stop what You have determined to do for us in Jesus Christ. Would You teach that to our hearts? Guide us by Your Spirit in how to live that. That we may live out Your Gospel together as Your people, even as as Your people, we gather together to share in this meal that You've given. That we might not forget what You have done, what You are doing, and what You will do for us. We thank You in the name of Jesus. Amen.